Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Shannon Kalyanamid. She is currently a venture partner at Gobi Partners, one of the world's leading venture capital firms with a focus on North and Southeast Asia. They currently manage over a billion dollars in assets and headquartered in Shanghai and Kuala Lumpur. And Shannon is based in Bangkok. We start the conversation with her journey in Portland, Oregon, where she grew up and then migrated to Northern California. And at the age of 12, her family decided to move to Thailand. And we hear about the struggles that she had transitioning to Bangkok. But it was from these preteen years that she learned the value of self-confidence and individuality. And she quickly focused on what her strengths were. Not surprisingly, by the end of her high school years, Shannon was voted most outrageous and was quite popular in high school. But Shannon started her career in finance after college. And first it was at PricewaterhouseCoopers, then moved on to Lehman Brothers before she expanded her repertoire to media and worked with such notable brands as Singha Beer, which is Thailand's national beer. When the disastrous floods hit Thailand, and primarily in Phuket, that Shannon decided to dedicate a year of her life in helping others. She had gathered up dozens of friends to help those in need, and ultimately spent about a year of her life volunteering to help those victims. After running out of money herself from all the volunteer work and spending a lot of her own money to help others, She came back to the corporate world, in part because she said she's broke, but she continued to dominate with her outrageous style, and she blended finance and media and business in a variety of roles. She had started some incredible businesses and raised millions of dollars from venture capital money with just an idea. I mean, she was really that magnetic. And today, she's thriving at Gobi Partners in a role that seems perfectly suited for her skills and her interests. What I love about Shannon is her ability and confidence to express herself so authentically. She knows what she's good at and she knows what she's not good at, but she focuses on expanding these roles to maximize all of her skills. And we discuss a lot of her many failures from the startups that she created to the first time that she was fired. And that was a huge wake-up call for her. But what I've learned from Shannon is that what you can control is your attitude. And Shannon remains ultimately so optimistic and so positive throughout various setbacks. From balancing her twin daughters and a high-charged venture capital career, and also her endless entrepreneurial spirit, it's such a treat to see this woman thriving. I'm grateful to have a conversation with the outrageously fabulous Shannon, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hello, Shannon. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? So happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here. So Shannon flew all the way in from Southeast Asia to do this podcast. No, not really. (laughs) I'm so glad she made time while she was in New York. So you have one of the most entrepreneurial mindsets that I've ever encountered, and it's not surprising that you juggle multiple business ventures, including being a partner at Gobi Ventures, one of the leading Asian venture capital firms in the world, 
I want to talk more about that for sure. But before we really discuss a lot of your professional ventures today, can you rewind it a little bit and share with our listeners where you grew up? Okay, let's see. I was born in Portland, Oregon. At the age of two, moved down to Fremont, California, where my dad worked out of Cupertino, Palo Alto, was there until I was 12. And then my dad made the move to Bangkok because he was called back to politics. So how did you feel as a 12-year-old, your parents telling you you have to move back to Thailand when you were born in Oregon, you were very, I'm sure, happy childhood growing up in Northern California. How did you feel about moving? At 12, you really don't have a choice. (laughs) It was cool. It was obviously really difficult because at that time, prior to 12, I've only been back to Thailand to visit like once or twice. Moving to Thailand the first time was incredibly, I think, different and hard. It was probably my biggest struggle at 12, right? (laughs) I mean, you don't have too many at that time. But yeah, definitely a culture shock. So you were in middle school at that time when you moved? Yeah. So I finished fifth grade, St. Joseph's School in Fremont, California. And I started sixth grade in actually another Christian school in Thailand. What was it like to transition there? Did the kids welcome you with open arms? Were you instantly happy there? Or what was it like starting middle school back in Bangkok? So it was an international school. It had a high amount of Thai kids wanting to come into the international school because in Thailand, the language is predominantly Thai. And so back in the day, not too many people knew English. So a lot of their families would send their kids to our school. And because of that, they would be demoted. For example, I was in sixth grade, so I was 12. I would have a bunch of 15-year-olds in my grade. And I remember going back and one of the biggest things that actually hit me was... I was my age. I was reading Babysitter Club books. I <laughs> That's a good series. <laughs> yeah, I, I like collected them. I had Sweet Valley Highs. I was doing my thing. And I like these guys. Of course, you have crushes at 12 and nobody paid attention to me. And these girls were bullies, actually. So my English was superior because my tie was terrible. Their English wasn't so good, so they were insecure. Fast forward, that's what I know what happened now. But I was wondering, I had this one traumatic experience when first couple of months I was there, I befriended a girlfriend who also had the same background. She came back to Thailand. She had better Thai and she was friends with these people. And they basically told her, like we were besties, we were having sleepovers. And these girlfriends basically told her, stop being friends with Shannon or else. And she did. I had bullying really early in my days. I was really awkward looking. I look Thai, but I don't act Thai. I'm really dark in Thailand and in Southeast Asia. They didn't embrace our color of our skin, you know. And back in the day, it wasn't attractive. So here I am, glasses, skinny. People called me Skeletor. It was really awkward at that time. And again, we just talked about this, but one of the defining moments that I kind of remember, and I don't know why, I mean, usually you either fight or flight. I guess for me, I was just like, fuck it. (laughs) Like, I didn't know what else to do. I think I couldn't fight because I'm skinny and scrawny. I did not want to flee. And so it's just like, okay, I'm just going to embrace it. Just be whatever it is. I'm going to be weird. And you know what? Personality is going to win. And so I became this girl who just did cartwheels in the hallways and people were like, Shannon, Shannon, do that trick again. And it's like I became this person who people were like, hey, Shannon, Shannon, hey, do this or Shannon, Shannon, do that. My social side came out then because it was like, you don't care about your looks anymore. You don't care about whatever. And yeah, I think 
that's kind of how I dealt that with it. That is so amazing, especially for someone so young to say, okay, I could either be embarrassed, go inward, eat my lunch in the bathroom, or embrace it and say, you know what, I'm a unique person. Did you have help with your siblings or your parents, or how did you do that with such strength at such an early age? I don't know. I think because my dad's really brazen. My dad, he knows a ton of people. He doesn't have very friends that he calls close friends. And I know that he just does stuff and he's like, fuck it. I apologize for the swearing in advance as well, but that's what he does. He's just like, okay, I'm going to do it. And when he does it, it just happens. So I think maybe there's a bit of that and maybe it's some, oh, I read a lot of Judy Bloom. So, so maybe, she empowers. She really does yeah, empower. Yeah, you know, so maybe it's a bunch of that, but I don't know. It's just like when you're at a corner, like, where do you go? And so fast forward, how did kind of high school and college progress for you? I mean, it was good. I embraced the whole personality. You know how when people vote at the end of the year and say most funny, most whatever. So I got most outrageous, most outgoing. That would be me. My grades took a backseat. But that would be me. So yeah, that was basically my high school. I did a lot of activities and it was good. I mean, on the front side, that was kind of my outlet. I think the other thing is because I'm the eldest sister. I don't know if you know this, but Thailand, there's a survey out there. Thai men are the number one cheaters in the world. Number two are women, Thai women. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. So needless to say, my dad was an avid cheater. Growing up at home... There would be so many times when I would come home, my mom would be distraught or crying, or my mom would be away working, and my dad would bring a babysitter home, and then in the middle of the night, I would accidentally walk in and see somebody in action. <laughs> and so I guess my point to all that is, because I'm the eldest sister, I had to shield my younger sisters from this. And I think that was just another thing of I had an outlet at school, I had an outlet here and there, and I just had to be strong. And I think that's just what you had to do in that kind of situation. Your sisters are lucky to have an older sister who kind of shielded them from that. So how did you choose then the college you went to? So the weird thing is, I had a breakup (laughs) when I was 16, also in Thailand, I wrote a business plan to my dad saying that I needed to go back to the States. So... (laughs) (laughs) because my English was failing. It worked. I came back to Benicia, did two years of high school, but then that freaking boyfriend wanted me back. And so I went back to Thailand, but in Thailand, there weren't so many colleges that had international programs. I knew I wanted to do business. I mean, for me, long from the get-go, I knew business and I knew that was going to be my thing, but what kind of business? I had no idea. I mean, at that age, I didn't know the difference between accounting, finance, economics, of the different finances, entrepreneurship, whatever. So the good thing is I didn't have many to choose from when I came back to Thailand. Disclaimer, (laughs) I didn't end up hooking up with that guy. That guy's that didn't, <laughs> that didn't happen. I do thank him because I love coming back to Asia. Asia's where it's at. I am a complete different person, would be a complete different person if I actually ended up doing my college here. Anyway, so moved back to Thailand. Last time I followed a boy doing anything, by the way. <laughs> moved back to Thailand, got into finance. Yeah. And so basically, because I only had three choices, finance, economics, or accounting. And I did some more research, didn't like accounting. I tried for both economics and finance, only got into finance. So, hey, (laughs) so there we go. So what was your first job out of college? So I got an internship at PricewaterhouseCoopers. At that time, they had opened up 
a division called CFNIB, so Corporate Finance and Investment Banking. And I didn't know much. Again, I didn't know the differences between all the different finances. But what I liked about this one was there was a lot of deal-making research. I started it in 2000, so the first dot-com. And I had some really, really interesting projects. But the internship was coming to an end. And they didn't have a policy to hire anybody who was undergrad. Everybody had to be a master's program. But luckily, I impressed them enough that they created a job for me. And I think that was also because nobody knew how to use the internet at that time. And I did. And so that was a good way of getting in. So how long were you there for? A year. And what I did was I had a stint between, because I started the internship before I graduated college. So I had a little window. I did an internship at Lehman Brothers subsidiary at that time. But then right after that internship was done, Pricewaterhouse offered me a job. So I continued Pricewaterhouse. But then I realized that Pricewaterhouse was just advisory. And I really liked and enjoyed my time at Lehman Brothers because you had a P&L. We were doing principal transactions. So it was like our, not my money, but Lehman's money. And the deals was much more exciting. And so I joined Lehman. And my first job, I remember, I think I literally was there for like a month. And then they're like, Shannon, you're going to the Philippines. It was the first time I was an expat. I enjoyed my time at Lehman a lot. I stayed there for about three, four years, made the best of friends. I had this girl gang. During that time, Sex in the City came out. So it was like, one person's Miranda, the other one's Carrie, blah, 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 and whatever. But it was really empowering to do all that at such a young age. And Lehman, I have to thank my bosses. They really showed me the way. And yeah, it was great. And so what did you do after Lehman? I left because I felt that there was something missing in my life at that time. So I was doing really well. I was starting to get bored in terms of I didn't have any creativity. I was doing a lot of deal making and we did a lot of real estate banking and distress loans. And a lot of the things that we were doing was like bankruptcy and foreclosing on people that just, I mean, some of them deserved it, but some of them didn't. And it was really heartbreaking. So I felt that I needed to do something with meaning. The year was 2004 and the tsunami hit. And so luckily, but unluckily, I mean, unfortunate that it happened. My uncle was the governor of Phuket at that time. And me and my friends were on this mission to do more meaningful stuff during that time. And so I called about 20 of my friends who had very similar views and they all canceled their Christmas vacations. We got a free Air Asia flight down to Phuket. We got free room and board. Basically, my uncle said they needed translators to help with the whole effort. And so 20 of my friends went down like two days after the tsunami. The tsunami killed 250,000 people during that time in Thailand. So we went down and we ended up helping the rescue efforts in many different ways. So I was a coordinator. So I dealt with the Danish crew and the Thai crew and locating dead bodies and helping the relatives locate each other. And my other friend who was a diver went underneath the mines to try to rescue people. These other girl twins that I knew had the job of pulling out teeth to identify people. I mean, none of us were trained. A lot of my friends were there for three months. And then I went on with another two friends to discover this village that was overlooked by the rescue efforts. And it was a Muslim fisherman village in Renong, which is right above two provinces above Phuket. 300 people, 150 people died. Eight kids were in a school on the beach, wiped out. 
because they were practicing for a skit on a Sunday morning. Nobody took care of them. So we adopted them. And that was my home for the next eight more months. So we did everything, built a whole school. I raised 300K from many different parties. And we had boats. We had scholarships. We did all these women soap making initiatives. So that was my thing for an entire year. Wow. And you didn't go into it thinking this would be a full year effort. No, no. I mean, I was using my bonus. I raised money, but I know other people, like other NGOs. So other NGOs take like 10, 15, 20% and it just felt wrong. I went broke, (laughs) but luckily that was like a year later. So I went back to banking at that time. So you did go back to banking. I did because I went broke (laughs) (laughs) and I was actually trying to get into the UN. I was like, oh, I like this. And I thought that the UN was going to be my place, but they're like, you don't have a master's. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Okay. (laughs) So that was that. So then you go back to banking. Was it back at Lehman or where did you go? After Lehman, my ex-bosses, this is before the crash too, my ex-bosses has started a financial advisory. I did a short stint there and then I got into Singha Beer. The reason why I did Singha Beer was because, so Singha is Thailand's national, one of our national beers. And I wanted to do something for the country. So I wanted to help export Thai goods to the world. And that was my noble mission. I had a fantastic time. So I took care of me along with, you know, the whole team. I was like the third youngest director there. We took care of 44 countries across the world. I only got to go to 20 of them, but it was fantastic. That's where I actually started understanding branding, did a lot. So my role was corporate strategy. So what I would do is go to Australia, set up the operations there, fix the distribution. And here in the U.S., we had two different distributors. We tried to do an M&A deal, tried. I pushed it. The people in charge didn't want this to go through. But yeah, it was great. So I got a lot of training, a lot of international business development, met a lot of people, did a lot with celebrities, media entertainment, understood the power of branding. And yeah, it just became a lot more global. I mean, Lehman was very regional. This was very global. That was really fun. And so it sounds like you got a taste of that kind of entrepreneurial thing and creativity where you could do something on your own. Did you then start your own thing or did you go to a different corporate entity? So you're right. So I did get a taste of it. And I was like, hey, I could do this. Well, not as big, but I could do this. And so I had left because... At the end of the day, there was a deal I was pushing. It didn't go through. Of course, it's not my company. So I'm like, you know what? There's the only one place where I could go where I could make that kind of decision. So I started my own media production company, TV production company. So we imported. I mean, I did everything. All I knew at that point was I had so much to give and so much to curate and so much stuff from coming lived in the States, coming from knowing a lot of people with similar hardships and struggles in Southeast Asia and global. And so what I wanted to do was help with education and be something. So I basically narrowed it down. I'm like, you know what? I want to do something in media. Thing is, I didn't know anything about media. So I did everything. I went to a film production company. I was behind the camera. I was in front of the camera. I helped write some scripts, read some scripts. I was doing the lighting. I was trying to understand all this jargon, all the way to trying to import some format. So I imported Asia's Next Top Model to Southeast Asia. And I was the girl who did that in Thailand. And then I created, alongside some musicians in Thailand, the biggest reggae and hip hop festival. And so did that for 10,000 people, understood the sponsorship world, even had my own TV show. 
you will not find it online. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah, you will not find it online. Thank God. I was horrible. I just found out that I'm not a very good, hi, taste this in this. Oh, this oyster is so scrumptious. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm not that person, but I felt that I'm a great producer. Long story short, during that whole trial and error phase, I went out of money a few times. I had some personal struggles, which was really, really hard. I think I didn't have enough discipline. The entertainment scene is so wide. And unfortunately, some of the big players actually circumvented me on some deals, so I didn't get paid. So at that time, I was really, really distraught. This was probably, and then, oh, and then the big kicker. So Bangkok had this thing one year, weird freakish flood. What year was this? This was 2011. Advertising was the first to go. And because I'm in media, my business tanked. So I was so depressed and I was so like, oh, what am I doing about my life, blah, blah, blah. And I was ready to give up. I took a vacation by myself, just got into the car and drove from Bangkok on my way to Cambodia and then realized I don't have my passport. So I stopped at this island called Got Chang. And the good thing is I met my partner and we fell in love. And that was the good thing. There was a lot in that conversation that when I got back to Bangkok, I was revitalized again. I got a LinkedIn message from Rocket Internet. Rocket Internet, for people who don't know, but I'm sure you guys all know, is the one that created Zalando, the one that, right, the Samware brothers all over the world that clone e-commerce and whatever. So at that time, that's their entry into Southeast Asia. And they were starting to recruit for three startups, Lazada, Zalora, Food Panda, sorry, four, Easy Taxi. And so I got roped in and I thought, okay, well, e-commerce, don't really know what it is. It's selling stuff online. I mean, frankly, I didn't even use eBay at that time. I was terrible. But I liked it because it was a new way of connecting to consumers and cutting out all the middlemen. Okay, it's a different kind of media, different way of connecting to people. If you're already connecting to people, there must be a way to influence them in other ways. And also, I didn't have a job. Okay, let's do this. And at that time, I fit their profile because ex-banker, ex-consultant, and that's what they were doing at that time. So ended up working at Lazada in the Thailand office, second employee there, second Thai employee. They had a bunch of foreigners that came in and did that. And it was such a, (laughs) it was a great time. Basically, I had to learn everything so quick. But the great thing is they had the blueprint. So they were like, okay, here's how we do it. E-commerce, we have 120 people, X for this one. These are the functions. These are how much we pay people. Here are the metrics, basically everything. So I learned how to run, well, start up and run a e-commerce really quickly. I also learned a lot of the startup 101, you know, the fail fast thing, fire fast thing, the whole entire MVP. What does that actually mean? Coming from a minor with marketing, we had the four Ps, but we didn't have these new acronyms like CAC and all of that stuff. So it's like CAC, what is that? I didn't even know. Cost of acquisition. All these new terms I had to learn again, which was great and really, really fun. But towards the end of it, same thing like Singha Beer, I was not getting through on a few points. So I had started as an entrepreneur in residence. And what they do is they rotate you wherever you go. So I started out in HR when HR was basically filled. Then I moved over and helped build the buying team where you procure goods. Then I moved on to marketing and I stuck there because marketing was just so fun to me. And at that time, because I had the media, I had the celebrities, I had the NGOs, I was like, hey, you know what? We could do this whole thing where 
we don't just advertise and do digital marketing, but we create more flavor, more content, more depth for our brand by connecting to NGOs, possibly doing some charity, utilizing some of these celebrities. Why don't we do some TV? And it was really different from what the managers wanted to do because they came from such a mature market. So in Asia, Southeast Asia, we use a lot of traditional marketing. It doesn't like cost a gang, but you use stuff like if you want to PR and get the word out to the villages, you basically use a truck with a speaker on top and you're like, hey, everybody, everybody look this way. We've got this skin whitener on for X, Y, and C. Come watch this. It's blaring in the middle of the streets and then people come out and look at it and listen to it. And that's how you market in Southeast Asia. You got to get down to where they're at because they're not online yet, right? Mind you, this is 2011. Our penetration, internet penetration at that time was barely 30%. Today, it's like 60. I'm just talking about Thailand alone. But in 2011, had a disagreement with my boss and then I left. And that's when I formed Moxie. Okay, and can you elaborate to Moxie? And I know Moxie then evolved to a different brand, but if you could talk about that evolution, that'd be great. So me and my two colleagues at Lazada thought that we could have our own e-commerce company. So we created Moxie with just the three of us, and we had another total of 12 staff. We basically raised 300,000K with some angel investors. And initially, it was supposed to be a curated version of Lazada. And for those who don't know Lazada, Lazada is basically the Amazon of Southeast Asia. And so what I wanted to do was create a curated version of Lazada with quality products, stuff that we like, do a little bit more content. It didn't actually crystallize until when I actually did my first M&A. And the story is because in the first couple months, you basically try to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of things we were trying just didn't work. We were doing a bit too much. I had a lot of learnings, almost ran out of money twice. So it was starting to look really bad. And then something turned. Basically, I did, I remember it, I did a speech. I was a moderator for an e-commerce panel. And for once, instead of me chasing investors, they were chasing me. And so because of that, we ended up doing our first M&A deal with a company who had some more e-commerces. And the great thing was when we looked at all our platforms together, 75% of both of our customers were women. And so because of that, we're like, hey, let's pivot to only women, like target women. And everybody thought we were crazy because they're like, oh, what a niche oh, it's a nice niche. But the thing is, people didn't understand at that time. And today it's become a big thing. She economy, woman economics, whatever you want to call it. Women, if you target them, they actually are the purchasing power for their husbands, their boyfriends, their sons, their daughters, their moms, their dads, themselves, their friends, right? So, so we had to come up with reasons to support this. And when we did, everything fell in place. And so once that happened, I have to say that basically cemented. Then our company finally, it started picking up. And the great thing was I was able to integrate my love for social and education. So we started working with the UN women. We started doing women talk sessions. We had this great group we worked with called Connecting Founders who did something called Women in Business. It was like a series of talk talk series. And then we just started getting it out there, just trying to give more strength and uplifting women and helping them support them, whether it be anything from work 
or at home, first mothers, even women with their sexuality. I mean, in Asia, you don't talk about sex a lot. There's a lot of dating taboos, people going to their 30s and freaking out, egg freezing. I mean, we talked about everything. And so I got to combine. And that's really when I felt so happy being able to combine the social part and the company. And you mentioned, yes, we did change the name with a group in Indonesia. And then we raised another $15 million. At the end total, we raised double digits in total. And we had to change the name to Urami. And people ask me what that means. And I say, it's when you have it all, you have Urami. But it's a made-up word. Oh, it's not a real word. <laughs> it's not a real word. Oh, my goodness. But you know when you say it with confidence. No. Yeah. And so that was the name of it. And we raised with, again, Gobi. And Eduardo Severin, who's the co-founder of Facebook, and a bunch of really great investors. And yeah, I mean, it was doing really well. And I left two years ago. <laughs> Why? Why? Okay, the main reason is because me and the co-founders, we didn't see eye to eye on things. They're still running it today. But I felt that we just didn't have the same goals and the same mission. I definitely wanted to take it in a... Different. Well, we had agreed on this vision, but then they decided not to do that vision anymore. In hindsight, what happened was during that time that we had the M&A, it wasn't really the founder's choice. It was also because during that time we had a capital crunch. In Southeast Asia, this was 2016. Southeast Asia, we had a Series B gap. Anybody who wanted to raise anything more than 15, 20, 30 million, and we were at that size, we were pretty sizable. We were like right behind Lazada at that time for different verticals. But what happened was the PEs didn't want to touch us because we're too risky for them. And the VCs only did up to A. And there was nobody really interested. So not saying that there weren't enough investors, there just weren't enough to choose from. And we thought that at that time, the merger would probably be a better way of doing it. In hindsight, that was not the way to go. And so I think that was one big learning from my side, looking at the bigger picture and like just trying to grow way too fast rather than keep on trickling on and doing it on our own. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that time. And Shark Tank came calling. So I accepted I'm a shark on Shark Tank. And that was really fun. And I thought, hmm, investments. Okay. So there weren't too many that I thought of. I mean, the first one that came to mind is Gobi because they were really good to me. When we actually had that capital crunch, they introduced us to people in China. They sent us over to China. They put us in front of Unilever, all this stuff. So I thought they were really good. So I called them and coincidentally, they needed somebody to cover Thailand and I joined them. And at that time, one of the things that we discussed was the importance of investing more in women. So today, women founders actually equal to 30% of Gobi's total portfolio. So we have about 1.1 billion AUM, and we have 250 portfolio companies from China all the way to Southeast Asia. We're in 13 cities across China and Southeast Asia, all the way to Pakistan. And proud to say 30% is part of it. And we just committed another 50 million to invest further into women through this initiative done by this amazing girl called Sarah Chen and her group called the Billion Dollar Fund. So found them, we got to talking and I joined them. So today my duties are to help them with the Southeast Asia portfolio. We have, we have many funds actually. We have seed funds, we have A funds, and we have a growth fund right now. I help some a little bit with China. 
And that's what I do. And so, I mean, it sounds like your role at Gobi is a perfect blend of all your skill sets that you built up, kind of the finance side in terms of banking and looking at the deals, the external business development side, and also doing good and kind of that social aspect. Would you say this is kind of a perfect fit? And even though you didn't think this is what you wanted to do in terms of the skill sets and your interests, what ultimately is the best fit for you? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, a lot of people think that when they talk to me, they're like, oh, you're all over the place, Shannon. I'm like, I actually don't think so. I mean, everything is business centric. And you're right. A lot of the commonalities in all my work is business development. The thing that is different is the social part. And I was only fortunate to build it in in my latter years. But yeah, with Gobi, I get to see so many entrepreneurs. And I really like this whole uplifting other people. I mean, people always ask me, okay, what was your failures, do's and don'ts? I tell them about how I messed up here. I tell them (laughs) what not to do. And at least from my failings, they can learn from it. Like there must be an upside from my failings. So, and it's great because I see their faces and a lot of them have this potential that they need somebody else to show them that they're good. And sometimes you just teach them the tricks of the trade and like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, it's a great blend. We've mentioned a lot of kind of broad failures, personal struggles. Can you talk about one of the most impactful or memorable failures you've had? I think the year was 2010, maybe. So during the stints after my media entrepreneur failure, I went back to that financial advisory firm and we did a project for one of the richest Thai, basically his top 10 Forbes list of Thailand, and he owns hospitals and everything. So he wanted a TV station. And at that time, Thailand was giving away concessions, bidding concessions for a digital TV station, HDTV. And so I got the job because of my background in media and my background with finance and everything. And we brought it into that financial advisory. So I led the project and this TV station was worth about $150 million. So we did everything from feasibility, the government contracts, trying to understand how to win it, hiring the whole team, 24 hours of programming, TV shows, did all the technical stuff with the satellites and whatnot. And it was a big project and I was leading it. So when it came time to renew our contract, like we were about three-fourths done. My colleague went to talk to the person in charge to renew the contract. And they're like, oh, your contract's been renewed. But one caveat, we can't have Shannon on this project anymore. And so when he came and broke the news to me, he's like, good news and bad news. We got the project. Bad news, Shannon, you're fired. That was really, 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 really hard because I thought that was my vision, my dream. I wanted to get into media. I wanted to be in something reflecting media. I was heading it up. I thought I was doing well. In hindsight, I didn't gel very well with the right-hand woman of the boss. And I got cocky. And I'm not going to apologize for being aggressive because we had a tight deadline. But there could have been ways that I managed the culture better because I am very American in a Thai company. And so that was really hard for me. I mean, that was a big failure. (laughs) First time I got fired in my entire life. But yeah. Has that stayed with you in terms of now just eating a slice of humble pie, different situations, dealing with different cultures, different people, different people across the table? Oh, yeah. It did help me a lot in dealing with people. 
it resonated a bit more. It made me a little bit more careful and trying to work with a team. Like that's the better outcome than trying to achieve your sales or this or that or whatever. You'd mentioned you're a mother to twin girls. Yep. If you could leave them a message in your career 10, 20, 30 years from now, what would you want them to take from that path the most? From career? I don't know about career. Or lifestyle, how you live your life. I think so much of what you do blends into your career too. So maybe just how you live your life, whether it's blending the personal life and the professional path. I've had a lot of time to reflect on this recently. And what I want to give back to my kids is that always go back and reflect on yourself. Who or what inspires you? That's a tricky one now. (laughs) It's just because I think I'm at a crossroads of my life right now. I feel that I've done so much. I know what I want to do in the next year. I think for now, it still sticks with, I'm still inspired about people in general. I'm still inspired with the rising middle class. I'm still inspired with all these people trying to hustle and work it. If you go to Southeast Asia or Asia, and it's the same here in the US as well, you just see a lot of people trying to build something. Last week, I met this 25-year-old and he dropped out of college. And after two years, he runs a $10 million business on e-commerce that he learned from YouTube. And I'm inspired with those people. Like, how'd you do that? Where'd you get the money? He's like, just telling me, oh, I just did this. And and it was like, and I tried. I didn't talk to anybody for a year. And then I see the single mom down in Jakarta or like the outskirts of Thailand. And she's just trying to hustle and doing her own thing. And she's just a badass boss. She's got a chicken farm. She's got a pig farm. And she has a rat farm. So out in the Northeast, they eat rats. Grain-fed rats. Anyway, so stories of other people inspire me. And I just want to keep sharing and curating and, and giving these stories and uplifting them because everybody has the same problem. We all fail. We all give up. We're all depressed. <laughs> we have these days where you're like, oh, I don't want to wake up. And so I think I have plans for next year that addresses this. And I'm still working on it. I was actually going to talk to you about it later. And I'm still working on it. But that's what gets me up because I feel that I still want to share to my kids as well as share with the next generation and the current generation. It's amazing that you met a 25-year-old who started a business from scratch. And this was just last week and you were inspired by him when you actually started multiple businesses, did really well from scratch. I mean, you raised venture money with just an idea and no revenue. So It's amazing that you still have that humility because you've done it multiple times in the past 20 years. And I love that sense of positivity, but also humility that you have now. Do you think about career goals? What is next for Shannon? You mentioned short term, you have your next one year. But when you think about what you want to do further, do you think, all right, let's think about this in five years, seven years, 10 years? So I'm very comfortable with Gobi. It's a great platform. The people are great. And the fact that we're in so many countries and actually working with entrepreneurs and their customers indirectly, it still gels with my vision and mission for what I want to do. So career-wise, I'm with Gobi. And we have big plans for next year and funds and whatnot. So that's still going. But Rather than doing the investment, I like more of the portfolio management side. I'm actually assisting or helping to lead more of the portfolio management for Gobi. So more of like, hey, entrepreneur, what do you need? Okay, you need somebody in China to distribute this and you need that factory in Southeast Asia to do, you know, like that's what I do. And I love doing that because to empower the entrepreneurs and just help them, they just need that little help and that's it. That's great. 
So career-wise, that's me. I'm set. Well, you'd mentioned this term ikigai, which is a reason for existence. And I know yours seems kind of unclear, but for me, it seems very clear that for you, it's to connect. And with people, when you're around Shannon, you will instantly feel positive. And I think that I'm very, very blessed to have met you and to have this conversation with you. So thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you.